I am Marisa Wigglesworth. I am the president and CEO of the Buffalo Society of Natural Sciences, which proudly manages the Buffalo Museum of Science and Tipped Nature Preserve. I'm very, very glad you are all here today. Welcome. Generally, when I introduce myself, I immediately follow it by sharing my belief that science creates opportunities and shapes our world. Here at the Buffalo Museum of Science, we lean on curiosity, inquiry, exploration as fundamental processes of science. Of course, those same tools are critical in advancing human connections, understanding ourselves and others, exploring the, our history and the societies we build together. Those things, of course, are just as powerful in creating opportunities and shaping our world as science itself. I would like to uh, acknowledge and welcome um, our special guests today. On behalf of the Buffalo Society of Natural Sciences, we are so proud to have with us today Dr. Russell Wigginton, President of the National Civil Rights Museum. Dr. Wigginton stepped into his role in August of 2021, I can tell you firsthand, a heck of a time to lead a museum. And no doubt he had to call on his extensive experience in leadership and management and community relations and education to lead his museum through the ongoing challenges of the pandemic. Dr. Wigginton's uh, extensive experience involves um, many positions at Rhodes College, where he was both a member of the faculty and the administration, and working in education reform on behalf of the state of Tennessee. He has served on a number of civic and advisory organizations, including the Memphis Zoo, Big Brothers Big Sisters, and Facing History and Ourselves, just to name a few. He is the author of The Strange Career of the Black Athlete, African Americans in Sports, which I enjoyed reading very much. And he teaches on a number of topics in African American history. His BA is from Rhodes College. His PhD is in history from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Dr. Wigginton, welcome and thank you for being with us. Also very pleased to have with us today to facilitate our discussion uh, two local diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals, the positive impact of whose work I know that we can see firsthand throughout our community. They are the hosts of Black Gems Dive In podcast, Akua Men's Adu and Kendra Brim. Welcome and thank you both very much for being here. And finally, I want to share my great appreciation with Delaware North and the Jacobs family. Delaware North approached the Buffalo Museum of Science about this opportunity, and they have been tremendous and generous partners in helping us bring this dialogue to our community and a free day for everyone who visits today and lunch outside on the lawn in our beautiful Martin Luther King Olmsted Park afterwards. Thank you all, and with that, I'm pleased to turn over the floor. Thank you. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for attending our conversation today. So before we begin, um, I do want to make sure that we honor and give a moment of silence to the victims um, that of 514, May 14, um, and their families. And so if you can join me for a moment of silence before we begin, I will state their names, and then we'll give a pause. Celestine Cheney, Roberta Drury, Andre McNeil, Catherine Massey, Marcus Morrison, Hayward Patterson, Geraldine Talley, Ruth Whitfield, and Pearl Young. If you could just join me in a quick moment of silence, please. Thank you. And also too, before we begin, we just want to acknowledge again, Buffalo Science Museum, as well as Delaware North for having us. So thank you 
Dr. Wigington, we are so excited for you to be here in our city of Buffalo and having a great conversation with you all today. Um, I also, too, want to acknowledge a few people who are in the room as well. Um, we want to acknowledge Chantel Thompson, who is the Chief Diversity Officer for the City of Buffalo in the Office of the Mayor, so thank you for coming today, as well as any other representatives and dignitaries in the room. So, thank you. All right, so we are super excited to be here. Uh, we've been having a lot of conversations in the community um, surrounding the events of uh, May 14th, um, but also what that looks like as we go into the future. Um, and so before we start, I just want to uh, talk a little bit about, you know, my background uh, of being Ghanaian descent. Um, the Akan tribe has this, this phrase, it's called Sankofa. And Sankofa means uh, we must fetch what was behind us in order to know where we're going in the future. And so just giving a little bit of reference to the conversation today, we'll talk about the past, uh, we'll talk about the present, and we'll talk about the future in terms of where we're trying to go. Um, and so the Sankofa bird is standing forward, and it's, look, it's, it's standing forward, but the head is turned back to look back to the past. And so we want to start there um, and frame the conversation. Dr. Wigington, you're coming from the National Civil Rights Museum. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about the significance of that site and the past connections as well. Sure. I almost wore my Sankofa bow tie. <laughs> <laughs> I brought it with me. I felt that energy and that spirit. Um, thank you all for having me here, and thank you for, on a Saturday afternoon, uh, engaging what I hope to be a, a, a humbling conversation, but an important conversation. On April 4, 1968, on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel, where I work every day, one of the most important leaders our world has ever seen was assassinated. I walk on that courtyard every day and do a reset on what's important. May 14, Buffalo had to do a reset. And when you're a historian and you work at a a civil rights museum, you have to help people, invite people, engage people to embrace where we've been. Not to get stuck, but it's a foundation. And that foundation allows you to understand how you're situated today. And if you, can, uh, if you can wrestle with that individually and as a community, the trials and the tribulations, what happens for the 325,000 people who visit the National Civil Rights Museum every year can happen for Buffalo, which is to forecast and think about and do the work for an inspirational future where everybody gets to fully participate to the best of their ability. And we don't do that right now in this country with my Civil Rights Museum hat on. But our museum was founded on the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, who was nonviolent, who was peaceful, and who was in your face. Because right before he died, almost 70% of the country had a, he had a 70% disapproval rating in this country. That crosses all boundaries. But he was bold enough, he was courageous enough, he was committed enough to think about a better tomorrow. That's what we do at the National Civil Rights Museum. And what I know about Buffalo, that's what you do as a community, too. So in, in that reference, um, you know, thinking about that 70% disapproval rate, I think now we see a real large political divide in our country um, with folks that 
are really struggling to kind of put some of these concepts together as it relates to um, you know how we move forward. And so I think from that that standpoint, when it when it comes from Martin Luther King, I think there's a lot of different principles that we can can take and kind of acknowledge um, today. Yeah, and absolutely. And during that time too, you were talking about Martin Luther King. One person that I know we had conversations with about briefly is Emmett Till, right? During the Civil Rights Movement, Emmett Till, and how that was a moment of change for our country as well. So it looks like as we keep talking about these moments of change, we talk about the Civil Rights Movement, we talk about 514, and even prior to that, 2020, the murder of George Floyd. But if we look at what happened to Emmett Till and that change, and how our country had that pivotal moment, right? Because we talk about how that's a moment of trauma. Mm -hmm. His mother had an open casket during his funeral. And so can you talk about a little bit about the moments of trauma and how we can move towards change with that trauma? Sure, one of the things that uh, moments of trauma, particularly in the context of civil rights, one of the things that um, history has shown us is it actually circles back and points to the resiliency and the resolve and the um, conviction that communities have. We too often look at situations and communities that have challenges that have been under-resourced and underfunded and forgotten about. And don't think about the people who live there who make it happen every single day with not enough and so much uncertainty. But if you flip that and think about how do you make a meal out of cornmeal, then that speaks to something internal. It speaks to a culture. It speaks to a uh, humanity that we all share. So what Emmett Till did is if your eyes were closed, you could still see it. And if, you were, if your eyes were opened, you hurt deeply one more time, but you knew, now I've got your attention. Now you can't just turn your head. Now it's hitting in your backyard. And anybody who doesn't think that they aren't a stone's throw away from that Topps grocery store, you need to open your eyes. Absolutely. Um, and I think that, that kind of brings us to a point where folks often have conversations about, you know, just the length of time. We've been having a lot of these same conversations for a very long time. Um, and when we think about Isabel Wilkerson, she, she wrote Cast, right? And, and we were watching, um, she was on a news station a, a couple weeks, well, actually just this past week, talking about the significance of this July 4th, right? Um, so this July 4th, the United States turned 246 years old, um, which is the exact length of time that U.S. chattel slavery lasted in this country. And so it was a really big inflection point to think about how long that lasted on this soil and, and the age of this country. And I just kind of want you to talk a little bit about that significance, um, you know, the legalized slavery at that point, and then we, we can talk about, you know, obviously what happened right after that. You didn't say 46, you said 246. 246, yeah. And I think if, if you were to ask, too many people in this country, how long did legalized chattel slavery uh, take place, the answer would be closer to 46 than 246. That's not any citizen's uh, lack of knowledge. It's not their fault. What we haven't done is recognize that that 246 was the foundation by which we are where we are today. That's not to blame anybody who's living today. That's not to uh, victimize anybody. It's a fact. I'm a historian. I deal in facts and data in primary sources. We got plenty of data to show. 246. What's also remarkable about that is how dramatically far we've come from that 246 in a 
lot, not much more than half the amount of time. So we have to situate that. We have to recognize it's a long way from chattel slavery to where we are today. If we are going to make the kind of systemic and sustained progress that we need, it can't be on the periphery of your consciousness. And so you said it's been a long time, and we've been talking about this for a while. We've also been acting on it for a while. And so talking about it, acting upon it in a strategic, methodical, um, one day at a time sort of way is how I tend to operate. That's not necessarily the right way, but that's, that's the one that, that, I, that I'm committed to. It's one day at a time. And sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. I mean, raise your hand if you heard of Rosa Parks. Everybody better raise their hand in here or we're going to have a side conversation. So Rosa Parks is one of those figures. And we have a bus and we have a bronze uh, image of her. It draws everybody from the senior citizens to their grandchildren because everybody wants to see Rosa Parks and, and be um, reminded of how she was tired one day. And then you read and hear from Rosa Parks, who was the first recipient, I will tell you, of our Freedom Award, which we lift up individuals every year when the museum was founded in 1991. And when you read about her, and then you hear from her, you, you recognize, oh, she went to the Highlander School. Oh, she was secretary of the local NAACP. She was doing the work way before she got tired one day. And it wasn't an ad hoc moment. It was planned in a very intricate and strategic way. So this person who we have seen has been described as this meek, humble person. That's most of us. Did the work every day to the best of her ability and her gifts and talents were focused on justice for everybody. You don't have to be a heroine to do this work. You just have to be principled. Thank you for that too. So that just brings me back to now the present, right? And kind of where we are now. So we know the murder of George Floyd happened in 2020. Um, and the response, you know, was great. We had uh, nonviolence protests in the street. We had many organizations and corporations looking to how can we help the conversation, move forth the conversation, um, implement diversity and inclusion programming. And then moved throughout the years, kind of died down a little bit. But then in our city, May 14th happened, which we talk about all the time was our litmus test, right? Did we really achieve the goals that we set forth in front of ourselves to really make sure that our communities are safe for everyone? And the question, you know, you ask your question and no, yes, but May was our, was our litmus test. And so now we're here. And how did we get here? How did we get to that point in our city that the massacre of 514 happened. So before we uh, go back to you, Dr. Whittington, I just wanna give you a few facts as well. So the city of Buffalo, um, again, not Erie County, but the city of Buffalo is about 47% white, 35% black, and about 12% Hispanic. But it's also important to note that within the Again, we'll talk about what's in the name, but east side or east of Buffalo, 85% um, of the black community lives there. So how did we get here? How do we get to that point? And can you just walk us through that? How we got here has been a marathon and not a sprint. How we're gonna get to a place different from here is gonna be a marathon and not a sprint. This work is methodical. Systematically, the uh, I don't know Buffalo real well, but I know cities pretty well. Uh, and I live in Memphis, which, in case anybody's wondering, is 65% African-American. It's the capital of the Delta. Um, and we have really good barbecue. Um, 
it's systematic. These things don't happen. You, you don't flip a light switch to get where you, where you are. And if I, can, if I can say this in this community, a lot of it stems from uh, the um, hopelessness mm -hmm. that, um, that evolves and emerges. And when people don't vote, and, we'll, and when people feel disconnected, methodically things start eroding, right? Because even to this day, east of Buffalo, where 85% of that community is, is African American, and this is across the country, if that community rallies around one topic and one issue, this entire community will stand up straight and listen and be heard. Now, that doesn't happen overnight either. But if you take some lessons from the Civil Rights Movement, and I'll just stick with Rosa, Sister Rosa. When those maids decided that they'd rather walk than pay their hard-earned pennies to ride the bus for a year. And the community said, we're not going to have these mothers, these grandmothers, these aunts, these sisters walking to these bad-paying jobs. We're going to give them a ride. What happened? The bus company was going out of business. It was a vibrant part of the economic base in Montgomery. They had to succumb. So there's that individual reckoning that you have to have. But when you're a part of a community that can hear itself and get a hint of hope, your power is immeasurable. So that's a long way of saying this moment, what makes it different now than in 1954? And this is part of the progress. You do have people outside of East of Buffalo who care, who are invested, who are willing to make the sacrifice, who are willing to be courageous, who are willing to uh, take a stand and take initiatives that they perhaps would not have done prior to 2020 even. And so it's, it's a collective coming to the table conversation, strategic conversation with actionable steps that makes those steps forward possible and makes them be able to happen in a much more rapid pace than perhaps they would have prior to 2020. I'm not naive in thinking that this is still not going to be hard, but you all are obligated because those 10 people did not lose their lives arbitrarily for nothing. You all have an obligation in this community to come together. Absolutely. And it's, it's really interesting because as we look at demographics, we have a lot of conversations on the podcast around the shifts that are happening within the United States. Um, we, we, you know, Kendra read off some of the demographics the changes that are happening specifically in the city of Buffalo have been really interesting as well. We know that we're becoming more of a plurality nation, which means there won't be a single ethnic or racial majority um, in the city. And there's a lot of conversations around, you know, we've had some population growth. This last census has shown um, growth in the population, but a lot of that is due to new Americans that are moving into um, our community. And so we, we look to the past and talk a lot about, um, you know, how we got here. But I think it's really important to kind of sit in, in that data as well. Um, when we think about infrastructure and we think about, you know, how the east side or east Buffalo um, got to that point, 
it's, it was made by design, right? And it wasn't a de facto. We, we talked about um, a, a little bit about that earlier, right? Yeah, the de facto segregation, right? right. Versus forced segregation. And what does that look like, right? And as we move through this time, and as you talk about infrastructure, economic stability, Absolutely. all those things. So do you want to talk about a little bit of, again, the changes in demographics, yeah. how does that resonate with us in the city of Buffalo, and how we can com come together as a community. Mm -hmm. And you talked about, right, people have passion outside of our, our communities, and we need everybody. A little bit that we talked about, too, is leading with grace, right? We have to lead with grace and accept people coming into the community and helping as well. So can you talk about a little bit of that, how we could come together as a community with our changing uh, demographics and what that looks like? A lot more listening and a lot less um, talking and um, these silver bullet solutions. Right. Yeah. I do think about the long game. I think about a, 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 a marathon with sprint character characteristics. You said 246. Yeah. We're in a marathon. Yeah. But you got to have some, some sprint characteristics. When you think about the civil rights movement, most of the leaders who you don't know because they've not been lifted up, first of all, they were African American women. Mm. Talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> we, need to we need to highlight that, put, put some respect on that for and, sure. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, the ones who we don't talk about enough also led with grace. Right. So if you're looking for the limelight, when you're coming mm. to this community table, mm. the people who are looking for a limelight, you don't have to be mean, for, mean to them, but you can put them over in the corner and let them limelight themselves <laughs> together. <laughs> but the people who come to the table listening with thoughts, opinions, uh, ideas, and don't care who get the credit. Mm -hmm. And they're both private and public. Mm -hmm. They're black and brown and white and fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. They're wealthy. They're not so wealthy. They have no wealth, right? When you see the value I work at the museum, so we talk about Dr. King a lot. When you see the value of every human, everybody at, at that collective table has value. You, haven't, you don't have a hierarchy of who's important and who's the smart people in the room, right? right? right. When you do that, grace just takes over, yeah. right? You're not looking for the credit because you're looking for the collective benefit. And it doesn't happen in the first meeting because something we often forget when we're trying to make change and when we're trying to really get anything done is we forget the part about developing trust and building relationships. Yeah. We, skip, we want to skip all that and sit at the table and hammer it out and bargain and negotiate and that's part of it too. But I can assure you if I have, if I understand your humanity your journey, when we start negotiating, it's going to be a very different process. I'm going to assume the good because I've gotten to know you. Whatever your background is, I'm not sure that you had a choice. Raise your hand if you got to choose who you were born to, what part of town, how much money you had, what generation college you were. We show up the way we show up. And once you understand that about somebody, whatever your uh, alleged differences are get minimalized, mm -hmm. and then you're able to do the work. Absolutely, and I think that's a, a really great point um, because since May 14th, a lot of organizations, you know, agencies, corporations have really come together. Um, we often talk about Buffalo being the city of good neighbors, right? Um, where where people in the midst of 
of different issues or concerns will find a way to come together. And so, you know, we've all been to that site. We um, actually record our podcast right next to um, that tops in that community. What was that? Beverly Gray, Gray, the Beverly Gray, exchange at Beverly Gray. Um, And so being in the community is really important. And I really like what you talked about, you know, getting information from the community, being led by the people who actually live there. Um, We also know that these communities are starting to shift a little bit. I think about the work um, in the Fruit Belt that's been happening with the medical campus and, you know, the growth that's happening in specific areas. Um, Rents are starting to look a little bit different um, within that community. We, we, when we think about the past and things like urban renewal and, and the infrastructure changes that have happened, the 33 is a topic of conversation, which is the highway that splits through that community as well. Um, I just want you to give a little bit of insight to you know, things like white flight, right? The, where, where people left the community, now you're seeing other conversations happen around gentrification and what does the balance look like and is there a balance um, approach to that? That's a great question. And oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and add to that as well, what's in a name? So we talked about that too, East Buffalo versus East Side. Sure. This, this conversation is happening all across the country. And I think it's, um, uh, I would argue, from what I know about Buffalo, it's, it's, a, it's particularly important here given the history of this community and how people came here and, mm. and what your industry has been. and and the the collective work ethic that you're known for, all these things matter, right? And and when you think about you being this neighborly place with a neighborly reputation and a city of first and those sorts of things, I don't see why you can't be out front in in, in solving Hmm. this, 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 uh, what is going to require a degree of compromise on how do you bring energy and resources to a community and still help it be livable for the overwhelming majority of people in that community. Well, it'd be great if people made a decent living. Let's just start there. If they could had a, they had a decent uh, a job that gave them the opportunity to put food on the table and and maybe put 50 cents in the bank if they choose to, uh, and have good health care and those sorts of things. Um, that is, by the way, why Dr. King came to Memphis. Not because. Uh, there was a strike, but because workers died who did not have, who worked 40 hours a week and still got public assistance and did not have the benefits for a proper burial on his way to the poor people's campaign, right? So you can't dismiss that, right? So when you're talking about this solving this, this, this mystery of bringing resources to a community and still having people in that community be able to live there. Um, Again, if you've built some trust, you have some relationships, you have some honest conversation, everybody shows up with grace, nobody expects to have a winner-take-all outcome, right? Because that's a short-term solution. You may win today, but but urban renewal, the reason that happened, the reason white flight happened is because It was a winner-take-all mindset. Mm. And so they said, I'll take all. But the core of the city, most cities I've been in, it's way too important. It's where your culture is. It's It's where you get that feeling. It's where you are, it's where you are. Right? It's, it's where the people are. It's where, you, it's where your pride comes from. So you got to come back. But if you come back with a winner-take-all mindset, mm-hmm. number one, you're going to miss so much of that value that you were coming back for. And if it's just a few winners, <coughs> it's not going to last very long. It's not going to be sustainable. I believe if you were... Um, courageous enough, <clears throat> if you had companies and your local government and the, the, the mayor of East Buffalo, because I know you got one, yeah. <laughs> or two or three, if the mayors of East Buffalo all came to the table and said, this is not going to be winner take all, what are your non-negotiables, right. and everything else is negotiable, then you're going to come up with some viable solutions. Everybody's not going to be happy with them because too many of us are winner-take-all 
mindset, yeah. right? So they're going to say you sold out, you settled for, <coughs> there was an uh, inefficient moment. All, that's, all that is going to be said, but if you're thinking about the collective, it's a better way to go. No, absolutely. Thank you. I also just want to be mindful of time to leave time for questions. So in about, I would say, 10 minutes, maybe, we'll start questions. So there is a mic in the middle of the floor. So if you have any questions, you can start lining up as well. Um, and we'll take your questions. So as we keep talking about the future and moving towards that, we talk about relationship development for the sake of the human collective, right? And that is imperative before you start having these conversations and having that trust. And I know Aku and I, we do trainings and workshops all the time, and we always end with three things, right? Like, what are, you, what are you going to stop doing? What are you going to start doing and continuing to do? So my question um, is, can you give our audience some, um, just again, we talk about relationship building, but some actionable steps for everyone to think about to go back to their homes, their communities, their organizations, and what can they do to help start leading this change in our city? It's going to be one of these things is going to be real simple. I'm almost embarrassed to tell you, but it's, it's, it's what I do and it's what I've watched people do and I know it works. <clears throat> and you know, when you live where I am, it, everything's about food. That's what we do in Memphis is we, everything's around food, the good, the bad, the sad, the celebrations, everything's around, around food. Something everybody in this room can do is drive to a restaurant in a part of town that you don't frequent and have a meal and be in community with whoever's in that restaurant. Dare I say, speak to them and talk about how good the food is, right? I promise you, it will be time well spent. You will meet somebody who you would not meet any other way. You will probably learn some things about uh, that person that connect to you in some form or fashion. It's the beginning, and it's one step at a time. And who knows what kind of friendship our relationship can develop from that. Or if, if, if nothing happens beyond that moment, isn't it nice sometimes when you go on vacation or take a little trip and you are talking to a fellow uh, tourist or visitor and you just chit chat with them? Don't you get that warm feeling? You don't have to travel to do that. Right. Just go have a meal in a part of town or in a community that you don't frequent. Do that. The other thing I would encourage you to do is somebody who you think you don't like but can't exactly point your finger to as to why, <clears throat> make nice with them. Maybe this doesn't happen in Buffalo, but in Memphis, sometimes I've heard people say, you know, I don't like so-and-so, and I'm like, really, why not? Well, I can't really put my finger on it. So you've already gotten to the don't like, and you can't articulate why. I think what you mean is my intuition, that person feels dramatically different to me and makes me uncomfortable. Thus, I put them in the don't like category. And perhaps they're kind, right? Somebody, in a, in a, I'm not saying random, but somebody who you may, maybe you work with them, maybe you are in space with them, bother to engage them with dignity and see what happens. Have I mentioned voting yet? I'm not sure. I Might have one, one time, one time earlier. Um, but I, I think those are really great points. We often talk about affinity bias and, and how we liken ourselves to people who are very similar to us. 
Um, in, in Buffalo, we, we definitely see that. People will come into the community to go to the Sabres games, to go to, you know, we, we all are all about food as well. Um, some really great restaurants and food as well. But um, in terms of just that connection point, I think that's a really important piece, right? The relationship building that happens. Um, and what happens when you form relationships, you actually start to care about people. Things start to shift and change. Um, and in the communities that we're talking about, specifically Jefferson Avenue, the East Side community, um, there's been just a historical lens on what that has looked like. These, are, these have been strong communities. They've been here for years. You think about Jefferson, the business, the business development, um, and, and exactly what happened there is really important. There are still black-owned businesses, brown-owned businesses that people can support. I do want to shout out uh, Black Restaurant Week. Kendra actually was one that started that when she was under the Urban League Young Professionals. But there's a website. You can go on there, look at all the different restaurants, and go enjoy that as well. So I think those are really great points, actionable steps that people can take, um, which people often ask about. What can I do? How can I get involved? Um, what does that look like in the future? And one more to add, too, right? So a lot of conversations are surrounding who can we uh, volunteer with? Who can I partner with? There's so many um, organizations in the city of Buffalo that you can partner with. We have a community response fund that's gone to so many different organizations in our community. Partner with them, volunteer with them, get to talk to their board members and the members within that community. That is a tangible way to partner with the community as well and get to know exactly what they do. Everyone has a specific avenue, right? I always say everyone has something that they can contribute, whether that's from a legislative perspective, whether that is from an arts and culture perspective, there's great things happening there too, but there's so many things that you can do. So partner with these organizations, get to know the head of those communities and work there and see the people. That's another way that I always say we can partner together. Absolutely, and so I'm, I'm looking at the time, we wanna be mindful of that. Um, we often, not often, every time we ask our guests to share a gem of the day, and I think you've, you've shared a lot of gems so far in the conversation, um, but we want to give you an opportunity to share a gem and also want to remind uh, folks in the audience, come up and start to ask, line up uh, at the microphone to ask some questions. Well, first I, I have to say you all um, are uh, very impressive. I'm, I had a, we had a brief encounter before this, but I have to tell you, uh, after talking to uh, these outstanding young professionals um, and seeing their passion for this community, I'm not sure if you all know, but they could be doing a whole lot of other things with their, with their talent. And I'm sure they do, but one thing is was clear to me from the very beginning is how passionate they are about contributing to this community. So you all, hopefully you understand that and you support their work in the future. I know the National Civil Rights Museum will stay connected to these black gems. Uh, I have to tell you that. <laughs> if my colleagues at the museum were here right now, they would roll their eyes when I say what I'm gonna say, because I say it, I say it every day. My gem of the day is make a commitment to yourself to meet people where they are. Just meet them where they are. You don't have to fall in love with it. You don't even have to um, uh, adopt it. Mm. But if you make a commitment every day, intentionally, even if it's one person today, to meet somebody where they are, it'll do a couple things. The first thing it will do is it will lower your blood pressure. Because <laughs> it takes a lot of energy to be mad, Every day. I mean, it, it, takes a, it takes a lot of energy. It's not sustainable. I tell people all the time, I will, I will outlast you because the glass is half full for me and it's half, half empty for you. I will just, I'll just be, be as is and you won't make it. <laughs> so be, make a commitment to meet somebody where they are every single day. And connected to that, you will find yourself giving all kind of grace to people when they're rude to you and standing in front of you of the line. You're not sure what happened to them that day. You will just, it will just allow you to step into these uncomfortable spaces like 
we're in in our society right now, you will step in them with an opportunity to both be self-fulfilled and be contributing to your family and to your community through a very different lens. That's all I got. Awesome. awesome. Thank you. <laughs> So before we uh, uh, get to the questions, we always give a chance and opportunity. Um, just let us know where we can find you. Where can we get information on the National uh, Civil Rights Museum? Put any plugs out there. I've been trying to do that all along the way. <laughs> Civilrightsmuseum.org. Civilrightsmuseum.org. Come visit. I'll meet you at the door. We have 325,000 visitors a year. 40,000 of our visitors come from outside the U.S. We are not a place you go visit. We are a destination. And what I can promise you if you come visit the National Civil Rights Museum, it is not an homage just to Dr. King. I mean, he's, he, he's kind of important there. It's a mindset. But the variety of people who come to our museum when they leave, I, I stand out front sometimes. I just meet people on the front when they're coming in and when they're leaving. What'd you think? And, and, and they all, there's some consistent messages. This place was more than I ever imagined. I'll never be the same after visiting this place. I don't have to sell the National Civil Rights Museum. Go online, take a look, come visit. We got good barbecue and catfish. <laughs> and if you come, you better let me know because I want to meet you in Memphis. Thank you. Awesome. Our first question. Good morning, all. And I'd like to ask a question. I, I call it a, a quest com. It's a comment and a question. Uh, very recently, there's been talk of gerrymandering going on in the east side of Buffalo. And I thought it was very, very egregious coming on the heels of May 14th. Now, we already had, I imagine that our president, when he goes to certain cities in, in urban neighborhoods, that it looks atrocious. And I was mortified when he came, President Biden came to Buffalo to saw, saw Jefferson Avenue looking like it did 40, 50 years ago. And so with the gerrymandering project coming on the heels of the May 14th, to me that was a slap in the face. It's like adding insult to injury. And you talked about this meeting people as they are, accepting you where you are, and being communicable. With that mindset, if we have the will to do better, we can do better. So my question is this. We have all these intellectuals, all these alphabet soup, and we get back to the same place. We've been saying the same thing over and over and over. What do you think is the proverbial silver bullet? So, so it's hard, for, I don't have silver bullets. I think, uh, I think it's comprehensive. What I will say is the lessons from the, civil, the traditional civil rights era, we don't, um, we don't talk about enough. They aren't lifted up enough. The lessons learned, those maids walking up and down that highway, and those folks who were risking their lives to show up at that ballot box. I don't know if you can get to the comprehensive part if those two components are missing. What I can assure you, my wife was an elected official. I can tell you, she could tell you that energy and time gets spent and resources get spent where those who aspire to be in office know where the votes are coming from. Mm -hmm. So having worked on the college campus for a long time, I spent a lot of time talking to students about uh, their importance or lack thereof in the, in the electoral process. And, and being a former dean of students, my job was to be mean to them, right? And so I would say to them, yeah, but you don't count. You guys got all these ideas and this, that, and the other, but you have not looked at your sisters and brothers from the 60s 
who jumped on those buses and did freedom rides or went down to Mississippi in Freedom Summer and helped people register to vote. You all don't vote. You don't have any money and you don't vote. If I'm running for office, why am I going to come spend time with you? You're not, you can't give me any money and you don't vote for me. There's a disconnect. So those lessons, if we go back to some of those fundamental lessons from that era, I promise you, you can get an audience with anybody who you want in this city and beyond. Once those numbers start, people start seeing trends, folks are starting to register to vote, they're showing up, they're having these community conversations. Everybody running from office, whether you live in their district or not, will want to be in your space because they're going to want some of your energy and, you, and, and some, of, some of the goodness that comes when people have a collective calling. That's as close to a silver bullet as I have. Thank you. Uh, blessed love family. Um, the word freedom. Before we were a captive people, we were a free people. After we were a captive people, we were set freed in a minority capacity in a system where majority rules. Two questions. One, will and how will we ever really become a free people again so that we are self-determining people? Second question is, we've been given and we've accepted a artificial classification of the human race, of the full beautiful, diverse spectrum of humanity and have that defined down to black and white. How do we get beyond that black and white illusion to get to accept the fact of that full, beautiful spectrum of humanity that we are? I needed that gentleman when I was writing final exam questions for, <laughs> for my students because uh, that's, that, that's a question. Um, real quickly, so you mentioned the Sabres. Mm. I wrote a book on sports. You mentioned arts and culture. I think athletics and the arts are two places. When people show up, it's all about that jersey, that what it represents, or that, that performance, that art, that, that singing, that, that dance. And when you're in community in those two spaces, nobody cares what color you are. Nobody cares how much money you have. They don't care what zip code you live in. They don't care what your politics are. Those are two spaces where people come together and those things I've witnessed, they get minimalized immediately. And then we pop right out of that space soon as the final horn blows or the performance over, right? When you, both of those things, I ground as being really closely connected in a communal, communal sense of the beauty of people. I mean, the humanity of people. And, and I think, sir, part of what you were saying is, how do we get to where the richness of what we all have to offer is lifted up and is the leader instead of the follower? Not going to happen overnight. One step forward, two steps back sometimes. But it's persistence and commitment to doing so. And I'm kind of corny, but I do believe when you see, try to see the best in people and assume good until proven otherwise, that gives us a chance to have those moments outside of a ballet or outside of a Bills game. Um, so my question is, how do you not let the hate take over? How do you not get frustrated of waking up every single day um, not knowing if there's going to be change or not? How do you keep your motivation going 
and fighting for what's right. Oh, I didn't say I didn't get frustrated. Because <laughs> I do. But I have the privilege of standing on the courtyard looking up at room 306 every day. That's how I do it. Whether you can do that physically or not, you have to find your spot, right? You have to give more of your time to the goodness of people, to the people you admire, to the people who you want to be like. Give them your energy first, and if you have any left, you may spend a few minutes over here with, with that thing called hate. But give that your energy. It's, it's very similar to what I said about being mad all the time. It's too much work, it's too hard, you can't sustain it. If you get in the habit, not of being Pollyanna or naive, but get in the habit of assuming the good until proven otherwise. It's, it's empowering. Get in the habit of what happened in the movement. Th those students, not much older than you, my mom happened to be one of them in Louisville, Kentucky, who went to sit at a lunch counter and knew what was going to happen were able to do so because they were thinking about, not because the food was even good, right? <laughs> they were thinking about, I don't want to live my adult life where I can't be treated as fully human. And so that my son and, and his siblings hopefully won't have to worry about this part of it, right? If you can't be motivated by that, then I'm not sure I can help you. But I have no doubt, based on even your question, that you've got tremendous passion and purpose. Thank you so much. Just really quickly, thank you for your question. We have about 10 more minutes for questions. Hey, so um, it means I can't give any more long answers is what I think. <laughs> Ten minutes is plenty of time. <laughs> so uh, my name is Will Green. I want to thank you for coming to Buffalo, sharing your thoughts. Kendra, Kua, appreciate your facilitation. Um, so I had two questions, but the sister here asked a question that I had, but I just want to add a little more to that. Um, you mentioned uh, white flight. We mentioned gentrification. And I think, honestly, gentrification is really the final phase of white flight. It's the return to the city. And I want to raise that up in this room that when you say a marathon, that's the marathon we're up against. And it's a diverse room, so please understand that gentrification is a return to the city for the people who abandoned it because it became too black, period. So how do we live together peacefully without the years in which I grew up in the city becoming a speed bump in history so that we can ignore it and say, yeah, we had civil rights and then some stuff happened, but we're back now. So I definitely want to lift that up. You can comment on it if you like. Um, I have a more specific question about sacred spaces. You know, I appreciate what you said about, you know, you have the opportunity to look up at room 306 and see, you know, this space that has now become sacred. But you mentioned that King was killed April 4th, 1968. The museum was open in 91, right? How do we show the same homage and respect and create a sacred space where this tragedy happened. So it is a daily reminder for those who are here of what needs to happen to make this a space for everyone in Buffalo. Thank you. That's a great, I, I love your question and your comment. I don't know how you do that, but I will say you must do that. What, what you can't do is take that day in this city and push it to the side. Right. <laughs> Amen. That's what we've done with our nation, our nation's history. That's part of why we where we are today, quite frankly. And again, it's not about blaming or victimizing. It's about fundamentally understanding how we got here. 
Because we will blink in 20 years from now if you don't lift up that tragic moment as a reminder to make goodness. People not born today will say, I don't know anything about May 14th. Why are folks talking about that? Didn't have anything to do with me. I don't even, I mean, I don't even know why people are, are why you get sad on that day. That's how we got here. So you must, you must recognize and use that as a sense of motivation and power to make sure to the best of your ability. You can't say it on, things like that won't happen, but you can, do, you can create the kind of community that rejects those kind of moments. Because it could have happened anywhere. We know this. But you're obligated to make sure your community is not a, is not a place that allows it to happen to the best of your ability. Hi, my name is Lakeisha Johnson. I live in the city of Buffalo. Um, I serve as a producer. I also work with certain groups, organizations, do get canvassing, to hold certain people in power accountable, like the cops or politicians. But not people, enough people are voting to get the right people in. So, and that's a good point I want to bring up. We had a massacre. How do we end the hate is my first question. How do we end the hate? Because we had a massacre on May 14th that was, that was crazy. Ten people were killed, three people were injured. The mayor, he's often right now, in a, uh, what's that festival in New Orleans? Well, he should be here handling his business, making things better. And he isn't. And we see people on TV that are politicians giving speeches and they're paid speeches. Hey, you can't just get on TV and, TV and talk. We want to make sure we hold those people in power accountable. How do we end the hate? Because we, people that are under 50 may not know as much, but people that are born in 50 and 40s know more than us. And those people remember, if you go back in the past and count things up now to the present, it's get, not getting much better. You still have violent outbreaks. You have white supremacy going on. You still have the cops who are violent and shooting people that are unarmed. You got this new shooting of this guy in, named Jalen Walker in Akron. And they just did a protest for it that was unarmed, they claimed. That was all over YouTube. So how do we stop the violence, against, especially, especially against our children that are getting shot unarmed? The black young black men are getting in trouble that the cops are catching and shooting and they're unarmed. And that's been going all over. And it's been going all over since Ferguson, that's been going all over. And we want to end that. What's the, what's the answer do you think? So I'm going to focus on one aspect of what you said that I think is, is fundamental. And you, you spoke of elders and young people that um, we have to, we, what we haven't done is created enough space for the voices of people who've had different experiences from a, even a legal standpoint. We have created enough space for those voices to be articulated very clearly. And part of that is because you're asking people to recall trauma mm -hmm. and share it, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that we're committed to at the museum and one of the things that I did in my uh, academic life is uh, capturing the stories of people while they're still here. Okay. And so in Memphis, uh, we interviewed over 300 individuals about uh, across the community, across the spectrum on 1968, sanitation strike. People from all sections of the city and just wanted them to reflect on what that meant to them, how did it impact. I mean, some people were blissfully naive. Some people were sanitation workers, right? Across the spectrum. And we did that so to preserve those stories. Again, little fun fact that, that might be uh, frightening for you. The number of people in the next decade who can say out loud, I remember exactly what I was doing on April 4, 1968, when I got the news Dr. King was killed. It's going to be about that many people left. Right? So we're literally not going to have any experiential accounts of that moment if we don't capture them. 
And you think people um, uh, make up stories now about our history. Imagine what can happen with Dr. King's story or with your story if we don't create sacred spaces for people to share this moment and the moments of 50 years ago, right now. Right, uh-huh, I agree with you. I agree with you there, yep. So we, just to uh, let folks know, we have time for two more questions. Well, thank you for coming. So we have, <laughs> so um, gentlemen right here, you will be our last question um, of the day, but I'm pretty sure Dr. Wigginton will be around to um, answer any questions that- There's a picnic outside, I'm not going <laughs> That you guys may offer or catch them at the picnic. Um, but we have one final question, so thank you. All right, thank you guys. So my name is Gideon. So at some point of like your speech, you did talk about being mad and meeting people where they are. So my main, question is, what is like the correlation between the black race and anger? Because people always associate anger to black race, and I don't get it. Is it from uh, the slip trade, or what? Well, I mean, I would say what we can't do is continue to discount our own personal journey and the journey of our ancestors. Whatever that may be. Like as individuals, it's hard to discount. Most of us, good, bad, and everything in between, most of us are still influenced by our childhoods in some form or fashion. Could be, you know, your values or what it, what it facilitated you doing, all of those things. And most of us this is not the best way to end, but, but, but I'm going to say it. Most of us have received labels. Sometimes they're positive, sometimes they're not. Traditionally, Stemming from an era where even post-emancipation, the, the dehumanization and relegation of African Americans in this country, there was a commitment to do that. Positive labels were not typically associated in very few areas. And even then, you were considered an exception. I don't think we have to spend all of our time in that space, but the challenge is we spend no time acknowledging any of that in most of our spaces. And so it gets normalized. And what gets normalized gets perpetuated. And when there's a challenge to their perpetuation, that's when we find ourselves in moments like we are now. And we succumb to those assumptions unless we are intentional about not succumbing to those. Thank you. So we do. Thank you. Um, so again, we would like to thank the Buffalo Science Museum, Delaware North, um, for sponsoring this event. Really excited um, about the conversations that happened today. On your chairs, you will see a QR code. We have a lot of conversations that we have on the Black Gems Dive In podcast. Um, so go ahead and scan that, and you'll get a link to where we'll, we'll post this conversation as well um, as some of the former conversations that we've had. And so just want to thank you all for coming out on a Saturday afternoon, uh, spending your time having some really deep conversations. Um, and we hope to see you all afterwards and get some good food. And free day at the Buffalo Science Museum. Yes, so thank sure. you.